is Moving Pictures. I'm your host, Brent Gunn. With me, as always, is uh, Mitch. Mitch, how about you? Say hi. Hello, everyone. This is Mitch Okakalka, Assistant Community Editor for Central Michigan Life and Central Michigan University's official comic relief. We also have a guest, um, second time on the program. We have Dave Clark. Dave, in- introduce yourself to anyone who doesn't know who you are. Uh, I'm Dave Clark. I'm the Director of Student Media at Central Michigan University and the advisor for Central Michigan Life. So last week, if you listen to the podcast, we talked about um, overrated and underrated directors. And me and Mitch both kind of agreed that Quentin Tarantino was a bit more on the overrated side. A bit more on the overrated side. So we figured what would be more appropriate than to have an entire episode dedicated to Tarantino the following week featuring Dave, who, like all of us, you know, we all like Tarantino, but I think we all kind of have our hangups with him. Um, I, I guess I guess what is like, what what do you really enjoy about Tarantino? Well, I, I enjoy being called out on podcasts. I, I really adore that. So thank you for, for having me in this week. Anytime. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with you. I think um, um, you could make a case that he's uh, he's overrated. But at the same time, um, I, I guess from my point of view, there are so many boring voices in Hollywood you know, this is a person who really uh, has done some singularly interesting work over the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. So I've been a fan. Actually, um, I was I was thinking about this in preparation for our discussion today. Pulp Fiction came out when I was a student here. It was actually oh, in wow. a, a film class, and it was not playing in this town. So my roommate and I drove to catch the midnight movie. Uh, in Saginaw. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it was quite, and I want to say it was uh, it was in the winter time. I, I remember it vaguely being cold and snowy at that point. Mm-hmm. But we had to to sort of drive through the night to get over to Saginaw and, and catch that last showing. And the first thing that struck me was to watch the people walk out from the previous screening just laughing and talking. I mean, there was like a vibe, you know, from that audience. So I thought, okay, we're going to see something probably pretty cool. Um, we were not, uh, going to those midnight shows, um, I'm from kind of that area, um, was not unusual then. Um, but you know, there's maybe out of a theater that would hold a couple of hundred people. You probably would get like 20 people to go see those movies. And this one, there was like a hundred people and we knew that this was, you know, going to be something that was, that was kind of different from what we're used to seeing. Was this your first Tarantino film? That, no, that, that well, you saw at the time. First one in the theater, um, you know, we had watched Reservoir Dogs like for a long time. I mean, this was one of those things that, you know, we would go to the rental store and yeah. get our VHS <laughs> copy just about every week. And, you know, that was really a transformative uh, uh, movie for us, 21, 22 years old. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, to see, to see Pulp Fiction um, in the theater with a crowd at midnight was a really cool, uh, a really cool memory. And, you know, I, I, I just, who's the director today that, that inspires that kind of loyalty and enthusiasm? Who's a director who could put a movie out right now that would get you to go see it at midnight and be super, super excited that has nothing to do with Star Wars or Marvel? You, you know? mean like mass audiences or just like yeah. us in general? Well, <clears throat> I mean, and he kind of lives in that sweet spot, right? Because yeah. it, it's, it's, he's still indie enough but I mean, this is a person who's been making 
movies in the studio system for you know decades now so he's, he's well respected really. enough because he has enough knowledge of the craft sure he's not sure. like a you know hollywood like shrill type or anything like that even people that acknowledge he's a hollywood filmmaker acknowledge that he has like a serious love for film mm-hmm. i mean you know he's a director that could open a movie yeah 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 and who are those directors that are left that would get you to do that and again, without a Marvel character or without, you know, Star Wars episode, whatever, you know, the numbers are dwindling. Yeah. I think Christopher Nolan, to a degree, would be Maybe. at least for our generation. Kind Did of you like, run out at midnight to see Dunkirk? No. <laughs> okay. But, but the, yeah, I mean, the mm, Batman movies, I would, mm, I would agree. That's Maybe one. if uh, David Lynch wasn't so old. But I mean, a lot of people were really excited for that Twin Peaks uh, revamp. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the level of Tarantino, but yeah, he, he's the first one that comes to mind for me. So I'd there's say. there's two. There's about two, yeah. <laughs> there's two. There's one and a half. Even those aren't really kind of don't have really like the rock star um yeah. persona and like popularity that Tarantino does. I do as. wish that there was a person nowadays that had that kind of persona other than Tarantino. I like how he kind of has that cult of personality about him. This sure. kind of like celebrity around he's him. He's a he's a brand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he really is. I mean Kevin Smith is kind of that way too. Like they're very different directors, but sure. you know. They definitely, even around that same, that same time, Clerks was 1994, and so was sure. Pulp Fiction. So kind of uh, generational similarity, too. Sure. I mean, that, that sort of indie filmmaker who had the chops to make a really interesting, energetic movie and then had enough savvy to go out and really market it mm-hmm. to, to, to pull in that audience who was maybe unfamiliar with them. I just, I don't, I don't know who that is that's, uh, that's working today. I mean, we're just sort of lost in these big budget movies, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, it's about special effects and and not dialogue. And you know, I would argue that's another thing that really um, that really helped um, Tarantino stand out was that you know during the horrible, bland, you know, wasteland that was the '90s uh, for for most of us moviegoers. You know, this is a person who came in and. Um, sort of reintroduced brilliant dialogue into those movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at anything from about 1991 until about 1998 um, that makes a top 10 list, you know, from those years. And and the chances are it was probably a crappy, you know, effects-driven movie that didn't have much to say. Or it was like American Beauty or something like that. Yeah, or that. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, if you watch something like American Beauty and watch Pulp Fiction, it's like night and day. Sure. The, sure. the dialogue quality of that film. You know, you're talking about the days when, you know, Armageddon was a big oh, hit, God. you know, Con Air, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so it was pretty just, it was pretty easy to see who the, who the auteur was and, and who, who wasn't. Definitely. So, so we're going to be talking about um, three Tarantino films that we hold in high regard, you know, among his work, three of our favorites. Um, Dave, since you're the guest, I mean, I, Guess you can go first. It is okay. it is me and Mitch's show, but I guess we'll we'll allow you. You just defer to the old man in the room. Okay, I gotcha. That's all right. Um, so you wanted the first. Uh, yeah, let's of, go. Let's go. Th- least favorite to most favorite. Okay, and, and you're thinking top three. Yes, yeah. yeah, so. top three. Um, you know, I don't. I don't. Is is this is the second one of these kind of rankings that we've done? I don't usually rank things that much, but I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a a softer two and three. Pretty much interchangeable, right? But I mean, my favorite's still my favorite by by quite a bit. So um, I'm going to throw honorable mention in right away for our editor in chief, who who uh, wanted to be part of this discussion, couldn't be here today. She is 
she's the only person who's talked about reservoir dogs to me in years, uh, <laughs> probably before our conversation today. So um, at some point we actually uh, sort of jokingly suggested, as we talked about a dress code for CM Life, adopting the black suits and black ties and, you know, Ray-Ban <laughs> shades. You know, it would look kind of cool, right? I mean, when you see three or four reporters coming at you, you might you might look like some FBI agents, <laughs> so men in black. Um, so I'm, I'm going to throw that in as a as a um, honorable mention on her behalf. That, of course, was the first movie that I saw by him. And uh, as I said, we would run out, get the VHS, watch it over and over, and and uh, it was really the first of those um, kind of hard boiled. Um, I pulp fiction style movies. I mean, it is, it is this pulp thriller, you know, this bank heist gone wrong. Kind of um, neo-noir. Yeah. And really just really interesting dialogue. And also, um, you know, one of the things he's become known for is to sort of play with um, the time, the timeline, you know, to yep. take that narrative jumping backwards and forwards and different points of the story and making you really think about how, how things are unfolding. So that was really interesting to see. And, you know, I mean, uh, just amazing performances by uh, Harvey Keitel and uh, Michael Madsen. Uh, you know, Quentin is starting to put together his uh, his uh, players, you know, Tim Roth, that mm-hmm. reappear in all these movies. So that's honorable mention for her. Um, for me, um, right now, I guess I would say um, Django probably comes next. Um a really interesting movie, Django Unchained, right? Yeah. 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 Um, really interesting movie. Um, I mean, Jamie Foxx, I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, initially, we're talking about casting Will Smith is mm-hmm. is the character, and he either turned it down or they couldn't come to agreement. But now you watch that movie, and you can't see anyone else in that role. Definitely not Fox. Will Smith either. Really inhabits that role. Um, and... Um, I'm blanking on his name. The guy from Inglorious, um, um, Christopher Waltz. Yeah, yeah. Christoph, Christoph Waltz. Waltz. Christoph. Yeah. yeah. Um, not familiar with his work. Another like star-making turn, and that's what that's what he does with with his casting of these movies. It's really brilliant to watch. Um, interesting story, um, unexpected. I'm a sucker for a really good western, and we hadn't seen mm-hmm. one of those in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he's he's really Quentin's really uh, interesting when he takes one of these genres and just plays with it, and whatever his western phase is, I guess it's at least two movies, right? Um, it was a really interesting take on the western. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in there, um, also a, a, a great turn. Um, re- really enjoyed that, and then um, that sort of seventies spaghetti western drawn yeah. in particularly with the score too, really powerful mm-hmm. score as, you know, music obviously is a, is a character really in Quentin's movies. And, and this, this did not disappoint. So, uh, so for right now, uh, I'm going to put Django at number three, um, number two. Oh, oh we're, we're, we're going around. Oh, okay. Three. Sorry. No, no, you're right. good. So, so that's where I'm at with number three. Oh, nice. Just to comment. Um, the opening of Reservoir Dogs is I think one of my favorite openings to any Tarantino film. Yes. I think we can all agree there. That's like the one of his best scene, openings. Yeah. yeah, the diner scene. It's great. Yes. And unfortunately, I think people learned a lot of bad lessons from that, not just oh, uh, referencing pop culture from <laughs> out of the blue, but also I think there was a downturn in uh, tipping following that movie. As, as someone who lives off tips, 
That scene hurts. Just be nice, man. <laughs> just be nice. What's wrong with you, Mr. Pink? <laughs> so, Mitch, what's your number three? My number three would be Jackie Brown. Okay. Um, Quentin Tarantino's kind of the more more so than any other film in his like repertoire, kind of his forgotten one, the one his follow up to Pulp Fiction, and kind of the black sheep among his um, movies. It was the only movie that he's done. Um, that's adapted from another writer's screenplay. I believe it was the Elmore novel. Leonard. Elmore Leonard's novel, Rum Punch, I believe. Um, and yeah, I believe it was Jay Ballman from Red Letter Media who kind of summed it up. Um, it's also it's also very, it was all very out of left field for what people expect from Tarantino. You had two movies, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which kind of um, and epitomized like cool in the 90s. Um, with Samuel Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction and all of the characters with, like we mentioned, the dress code from Reservoir Dogs, like very cool. Then you have Jackie Brown. Samuel Jackson plays a strung out kind of like low-level crook. The, Robert De Niro um, comes in as just this very mon- monoslavic. Um, again, very, very, it's very all... V- very like kind of just trashy characters and then you have um a very very good um performance by Pam Greer as the uh protagonist Jackie Brown and which is kind of and in in that it was even kind of um in the face of what people expected from Tarantino at the time like again this very cool very um snappy dialogue then you have um Pam Greer come in the, in the kind of turn what you expect from a from this kind of movie protagonist on its head. And so I believe um not not his flashiest work, kind of his more grounded of everything he's done, but I think it really shows his chops as a storyteller, as a screenwriter, um, and his uh some of his um best work when it comes to characterization. I, I've never seen Jackie Brown. Everyone mm-hmm. who's always uh mentioned it to me loves it though. Mm-hmm. They're always recommending it to me. I don't I don't love it. <laughs> I don't love it. At least it's, you're honest. It's uh, it's an odd follow up, and I mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of uh, why that movie doesn't get as much love, maybe as it it should. Is mm-hmm. It just was such an odd follow up. Um, you know, even Elmore Leonard, I think at some point was like, man, of all the books I've written, that's the one that you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he he was a huge fan of his because uh, the great you know crime writer Elmore Leonard from Detroit. Um, he had that gift for dialogue too. So Quentin was, has been very open about how much he loved those books and appreciated that this is a person who um, um, really understood how he was developing his characters. Mm-hmm. Um, a better adaptation of one of his novels is um, Out of Sight. With, By uh, Steven Soderbergh yep, has George Clooney. George Clooney mm-hmm. and uh, Jennifer Lopez, which really kind of like that to me is a more – Tarantino movie than I think Jackie <laughs> Brown is. She's brilliant in it though. Um, some of the casting choices are weird. Who's who's the detective? Robert someone Forrester. Robert Forrester. Yes. Okay. I didn't care for him in there. Um, mm. And and De Niro, um, I thought was really mm. like not not <laughs> able to find his place in that movie. Um, but there's you know Samuel L. Jackson really has become the the muse, and that's a yeah. that's an interesting <laughs> different take on a bad guy. Um, in a Tarantino movie, which was mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. Well, for me, for number three, uh, Dave kind of stole it from me, but my number three is also Django. Um, this was 
the second Tarantino film I ever saw in theaters. I saw Inglorious Bastards in theaters. And um, Django was really interesting to me because this was uh, 2012, I believe. And uh, going from Inglorious Bastards to Django, it made me kind of look at Tarantino politically because I felt like both those films were making pretty overt political statements, which felt pretty welcomed because around that time, like 2009 to 2012, you know, we had a lot of, uh, you know, the Tea Party was like a huge big thing Uh and Obama was still kind of new as a president. There was a lot of tension and stuff. But I like how Tarantino kind of uh, used those two films to make uh, political kind of interjections into the discussion without doing so. You know, he was able to um, give his opinion and give some pretty, you know, powerful insight without being the prevailing voice. He let, you know, performances kind of make it for him. And I don't think that's any stronger than in Django because he's really letting uh, Jamie Foxx steal the show and really kind of uh, make those statements that he doesn't really need to make. And it also was pretty close to those statements he was making around uh, police violence too. So uh, it really made me kind of readdress Tarantino and kind of see him in a new light. So Django is always going to kind of hold a good place in my heart. And it's, it's like really funny. I think Mm -hmm. the movie's hilarious. It's a, it's a fun movie and you know, you got to get past some of the language, which is, I think when that movie came out, um, that was a controversy there. Um, Mm -hmm. Which kind of misses the point. I mean, you know, racial slurs are what they are. They exist in society. And particularly when we're talking about post-Civil War, that's the language that would have been used. Yeah. So there's a lot of focus on the use of the language in that movie and, and a little bit of a miss on, on what else was happening in the movie. My favorite thing about that is that an immigrant helps a black bounty hunter mm-hmm. find capture and kill rednecks (laughs) talk about a political statement in 2007 or whenever that came out um 2011 2012 2012 okay all right talk about a statement in 2012 Mm -hmm. um it's it's one of my if i have to if i have a saturday where i can throw on any movie like mm-hmm. that's that's going to be one that that makes the the short list right to just watch for fun. I think it's why it was more purely like entertaining movies. Yeah, which is interesting because I think it's one of his most like um, potent in terms of like theme, but it's also mm-hmm. one of his most easy to watch. You know, like it's very very accessible. And I'm not really a big western guy. Like I like you know El Topo and stuff like that. But that's because like I like you know artsy crap. Like, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> I've never really been big on Westerns, but the fact that I was able to like immerse myself in it and kind of appreciate all those like aesthetic qualities of uh, Western films, I think it proves that it's like, Mm. it's a really good movie. Fun fact. uh, I went to go see Django Unchained with my mom who had (laughs) no experience uh, with Tarantino beforehand. I just told her, Oh, like, cause my car wasn't working at the time. I was like, Oh, can you take me to this movie? It's, it's a Western. Hey, we're going to go watch a cowboy movie. (laughs) That's that's basically what I said. She's she's actually become quite a big fan of Tarantino um, and, since then. And you know what? You could have also said, we're going to go watch a love story because that's yeah, really what yeah. that is. Mm-hmm. He spends a whole movie trying to get back to the love of his life, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and unlike some of his other movies, this one actually has a pretty satisfying and definitive conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an ending to that movie, yeah. which is one of the things I'm sort of critical of him some sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. So yeah, uh, we can move on to number two, if you like. All right, number two. Um, 
love this movie. This is another one Saturday afternoon. If I just have some time to throw a movie on, like, like this is a fun one to watch. I don't know if I can probably sit through both parts of it, but I love kill bill volume one. Um, we talk a lot about Quentin's dialogue, you know, his gift of using language to tell stories. Um, and we don't, we don't always think about him as a visual storyteller, but in that movie, boy, he really rises to the occasion. There are some, there's some beautiful cinematography in that Mm -hmm. movie. Um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, Mitchell and I, you know, why volume one versus volume two, that sort of thing. And for me, this is, this is just a stunningly beautiful film. The, uh, you know, spoilers for the thing that came out 20 years ago, but, um, the, um, the the finale of that movie before it ends is the sword fight between mm-hmm. um, one of the um, the assassins and uh, the bride um, in the snow mm-hmm. at night. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, I mean, there's so many scenes in there. There's the scene where she's um, the bride is driving on the motorcycle through Tokyo. Um, just that set to that music is so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. There's the is it the crazy 88? Is that who they are? The, yes. The, yeah. The, the ninja assassin group with the black suits. Um, just amazing. S- stupidly bloody over the top, <laughs> almost like Monty Python-esque with big <laughs> sprays of blood coming out of, you know, shoulders and things like that. Mm-hmm. But very highly watchable. Um, a re- and, you know, uh, for as much... This is, a, this is a filmmaker who's always been controversial. He's been controversial lately um, and part of the, the Me Too conversation because of his treatment of Uma on those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there's some things uh, I think he said on record he would do differently. And, and um, I, I'm sure that this is not an easy person to work with. But, um, you know, she seems to have been his muse for a couple of mm-hmm. these movies, including Pulp Fiction as well. So, I mean, in terms of him, whatever you think about his personal life and what he does off screen, on screen, um, he always finds a place uh, for a captivating uh, female lead. And I, I appreciate that about his movies in general, but in this, this particular movie and, and the follow-up volume too, um, he really does a beautiful job of giving this woman uh, an interesting character to develop and an interesting story to tell. And, um, and, in a, and it's a powerful, it's a powerful performance um, that she delivers. So um, that is just a favorite of mine. It's fun to watch. It is fun to uh, revisit the story. And um, I got to say that's, that's up there with, um, Sam Jackson's character in uh, in Pulp Fiction is one of those iconic, iconic uh, characters that we can just say the name and you go, oh, I know who exactly you're talking about, and mm-hmm. that just sort of inhabits this place in pop culture that's really unique. So, yeah, Kill Bill Volume One. Okay, uh, my number two, uh, d- doing Jordan Hermony pl- proud is Reservoir Dogs. Um, we've already talked about it a bit, but yeah, I think it's. One of the you've mentioned kind of um, movies of his that you can just like pop in and watch. Um, uh, I think for me, the one that encapsulates that the best would be Reservoir Dogs. It's shorter compared to his other ones. It's very um, it's a very uh, tightly woven film. It's all uh, 
pretty much all in one place. You hear him. I believe Michael Fassbender, that was part of the reason why he got, why he was chosen for Inglorious Bastards. It was because when he was in like high school, like early college, he actually put on a stage production of Reservoir Dogs. And um, I, and I real as um somebody who to a degree grew up on kind of, it's kind of a theater kid, not really participating, but he's observing and like interested in theater. I really do like dialogue-driven movies. And uh, Reservoir Dogs is probably one of the more dialogue-driven movies of his. And it's, again, within the this uh, contained environment, cast full of extremely interesting, extremely tightly written characters. Uh, very entertaining movie. Reservoir Dogs is hard for me to, like, get into. I'll mm. be honest. I've tried really hard. Um Maybe I need to give it another revisit because, like, the way mm. that you just described it, it just, like, sells it so well. And I love dialogue-driven movies, too. And I'm mm. not, like, you know, hateful against Tarantino or anything. There's just something about Reservoir Dogs that, like, there's a hang-up for me with it. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Maybe it's 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 it feels a little dated at times. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I really, mm. I'm going to make that a mission, like, this week. I'm going to rewatch so, Reservoir yeah, what What is it that turns you off? I don't know. Like, I feel like there's times where there's there's a lot of I, I'll say this much. I, I just rewatched it in advance of our conversation because I knew it would come up somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like, you know, chewing the scenery. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I wouldn't say it's overacting, but there's no one's very shy in that mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> I, I guess sometimes I feel like the film thinks it's cooler than it is. And sometimes I can kind of turn me off. Okay. I like something that's a bit more humble in its, like, presentation. Sometimes it's a bit too, like, it's the same problem I have with Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. Like, I like it, but sometimes it's aware of how good it is, and it kind of milks itself. Kind of how I feel about Reservoir Dogs, but it's good. You have to approach it with a certain mindset, more so for than sure. I think a lot of its movies. Yeah, you have to, like, really be in the mood for that kind of movie, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And wow. going back to kind of, like, the theatrical part of it, um, and, like, the chewing the scenery, very theatrical performances very like out there very um grandiose uh character driven characterizations and and i get why he does that because like it's neo-noir a lot of the characters in film noir were very kind of over the top you know like these noble men that are like looking to get to the bottom of the crime or they're like very dramatic in their conflict or something i get that there's just some some weird expression of like that that cycle you know there's that 30 year cycle Sure. Mm-hmm. It's just funny how, like, that kind of popped up in the early 90s, and it was, like, a very, like, culturally uh, reappropriated thing, a lot of film noir and pop art. And it's always mm-hmm. just been a really kind of weird conflict because it's, like, all that was going on while, like, grunge was going on. And it makes me feel a little bit, like, yeah, thrown yeah. off almost at times, you know? I would, I would even say that a lot of that sort of predates um, grunge. I, so, again, uh, I'm here to provide the old man <laughs> yeah. perspective. Um, I, I guess what I would say is, because uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying, I guess I w- what I would say is this. Um, when you sit down and watch it, if you're going to do that, I, I would just take a moment to appreciate the timing of this movie. Because we know that a lot of the success and failure of movies has to do with timing as well and what, what else is happening in the marketplace right then, what else is um sort of popular at the time and what he was trying to achieve with that if that was to come out today you'd think well this this is a movie that thinks it's a little too precious you know Mm -hmm. it's it's trying to be cooler than it probably is but you know at that time 
it was really a revelation to have this dialogue-driven movie with just bad guys. I mean, there was nothing that was really comparable to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what made it stand out. Why did it, you know, um, make, why did it get such attention at Khan? And, uh, you know, why, why are people still talking about it today? Why, why did it serve as a platform for this guy to kind of launch his career? Low budget, Right. It doesn't look like much. Again, I mean, uh-huh. he's not known for like beautiful looking movies. That's another problem lately. I have. It's, it's probably the least impressive of his cinematography. Yeah. It is. It's a bunch of guys in a garage for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they're not in a garage or in a diner or uh-huh. the boss's office, was, which isn't much to look at either. So it really has to be all about the words because there's not much more he can work with at that point. Um I think the black suits are cool. I almost think that he probably did that out of necessity because he didn't have any money. They're like the cheapest suits to rent right. at the rental store. Exactly. Um, but what we had out at the time were a lot of really poorly made 90s movies that weren't saying anything. There was nothing interesting about them. There was no – I mean, you're talking about like Kevin Costner's Robin Hood remake and things like that that were at the movie theater. And this was sort of the antidote to that. Mm-hmm. So that, if it helps put it in perspective, made that really, you know, um, important for its time. It wasn't Braveheart. Mm-hmm. It was the opposite of that. It was a bunch of guys doing bad stuff um, in just really one location and just sort of talking it out. Um, the other thing besides that, I guess I would say, is the um, performances in there. There's a lot of scene chewing, but that's why you know – Reservoir Dogs is the reason you know the name Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what Adam Sandler movies? I hope not. Jeez, Fargo. Uh, Come Far- on, Far- Fargo. Some well, and, and so how We're does not he let you forget about Fargo? How, how does he get to Fargo through, through Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs? Dogs probably. Um, and you know, um, was, it, uh, was it Chris Penn? Was the other actor one of the Penn? Was it Chris Penn? <sighs> I want to say that's his name. He's a nice guy. Eddie, I think. Um, I can't think of his no. Harvey Keitel we hadn't seen in a long time, mm-hmm. and what a powerhouse performance. Tim Roth mm-hmm. is kind of amazing in that movie. Yeah. Um, Michael Madsen at that point was doing, like, really bad B-movies. and That's like, all he's done since. And yes. <laughs> really, I don't know that it helped his career <laughs> much, but um, it's certainly the best B-movie he was ever in was mm-hmm. that one. Um, just the, the most charming creep. You're ever going to see on film is that guy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, this is an independent film. No money, no nothing, no juice. But it, whenever you hear that song stuck in the middle with mm-hmm. you, it takes you back to that scene. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing for an independent movie to have that kind of an impact all these years later. So give it another shot. I'll give, give it, it another, another shot. shot. That's actually a pretty good transition to my number two pick, which is a uh, Pulp Fiction. <clears throat> okay. Um, I really like Pulp Fiction. I think it's a really good movie. Probably one of the better movies. Not not the best of the 90s, but it's it's good. Um, I used to hate it. I used to like just, I I thought it was boring. I didn't get it. Like, I was like 12. Like, it, it, it kind of went. You Pulp Fiction when you were 12? Yeah, it kind of <laughs> flew over my head, you know, but. I was in the same boat, to like, be honest. Re-returning to it years and years later when you're a bit more mature it's probably his one of his most inspired, his second most inspired film, in my opinion, to date. Um, there's so many just like strong performances, 
great scenes, great writing. I love that it's really a film about nothing and how it's really a film that kind of just strings you along and you're just enamored by the power of the characters. I love movies like that. And I love a movie mm-hmm. that can just like carry itself by the charisma of the world that it's like giving you. Um, like one scene after another, like there's not a single like scene in that movie that feels misplaced or mishandled. It's a very meticulously, you know, structured film. And I mean, he's probably never going to get to that level again. You know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that like, that's one of his creative peaks. Well, that's my number one is Pulp Fiction. (laughs) I love that movie. I still love that movie. I cannot believe your parents let you watch it when you were 12. <laughs> I think it was on like uh, AMC, so it was like super edited. Okay. So I even got like a worse version of it, like a super so it was, condensed. It was like 45 minutes long. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> like there's a lot of flips and fricks and frazzles mm-hmm. and just like words that were not said in the film. <laughs> so like, like I said earlier in our conversation, um, my roommate and I uh, made a beeline from Mount Pleasant. You just sort of – if I if I recall, we're we're sitting at the bird, kind of commiserating about the fact we weren't gonna be able to see this movie, and um and disappointed that it wasn't playing anywhere in town. Which at that point, the town had like, Mount Pleasant had three movie theaters, and this oh, wow. movie was not playing in any of them, hmm. right? Assassins or something terrible like the <laughs> Stallone movie, and God knows what else is playing. Um, but none none of those um none of those theaters had had this movie there, and we just kind of like you know put our pint glasses down and said, let's get in the car. We're going to Saginaw. We're going to see this movie. <laughs> and um, we walked out of there changed, you know. Um, that was such a uh, – um, I, I don't want to say transformative because it didn't transform me. I was highly entertained by it. But it was such a different kind of movie than we were used to seeing. And the, the fact, I mean, I'll, I'll say part of the appeal was seeing it at midnight. It felt like a midnight movie. Yeah. Pulp Fiction is the perfect name for that movie. Mm-hmm. It's a story where not much happens and everybody in there is a bad guy. There is no one innocent in that entire movie whatsoever. Um, so to be fascinated by the interaction of all these terrible people, <laughs> there's no... Who's the hero? Who's the protagonist? Butch? No, he kills a guy. <laughs> he, he he bet against himself. He was he was down to throw this fight. Um, you know, it's it's such a unique moment. It's kind of where the independent movie um, community really I, I don't I, I don't want to say was taken seriously for the first time, but it's it's when they kind of were noticed by the mainstream for the first time. All of a sudden, your grandparents were talking about, oh, Pulp Fiction. Have you seen that? Is that good? <laughs> yeah. um, so so it was a really interesting moment. Um, Hollywood taking a look at that and saying, huh, maybe we could do good movies someday. Maybe <laughs> we could do thoughtful movies someday. I guess the words matter. And, you know, <laughs> Bruce Willis can do more than try to find, you know, save the the – Earth from an asteroid or whatever. Actually, that came afterwards, but still. Um, he can play a mean harmonica, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a co- just a couple of things about Pulp Fiction. Um, it has three star-making turns. Um, one a little a, a little less. I mean, the reason that you know Ving Rhames is because of that movie, the iconic, um, you know, scary gangster in there. I'm blanking on his name. What was his name? Uh, uh, Marcellus, Marcellus Wallace. Wallace. Yes. 
for half the movie, all, all you can see is the back of his head, right? Mm-hmm. But what an impression he makes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how we know this guy. He didn't really go on to, you know, you know, open movies himself, but that's that's all fine and good. Um, it's the reason that we know Sam Jackson. Yes, he was in a lot of movies before Pulp Fiction. You know him because at that last couple moments of the film, when he said, pull my wallet out of that bag, which one is it? You'll know it's the one that says, I mean, forever, right? That he he become he becomes a film legend. That character, right then, uh, as well as all the rest, the, the quoting that Bible verse and everything, mm-hmm. star making turn, and then of course Uma Thurman, you know, um, she was in movies before too. She went on to be in more Tarantino movies, but she's never been a more Tarantino character in a more Tarantino film than she was in Pulp Fiction. Uh, Mia Wallace, the mysterious, was an actor and not quite sure what she does now, except do other people's drugs when they're not looking and, you know, end up, you know, dying of overdoses. But really three star-making turns in that movie. Two redemption stories. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis was really circling the bowl at that point. He could not carry a TV show, and he really was not carrying movies that were worth a damn. It was sort of all those really bad movies that followed in the wake of another bad movie called Basic Instinct, which were like these weird rated R sex thrillers. Like, that's kind of what he was reduced to. Um, And all of a sudden, he becomes Butch the Boxer. And he gets a a whole new career after this. Mm -hmm. And I think they they really like relaunched the Die Hard series after this movie, if I recall right, because he and Sam Jackson were in one almost mm. immediately after. I'm not sure if they're connected, but they're like, they're close in release date. Yeah. I mean, he could not open a movie. He could not hardly open a house of blues with his harmonica <laughs> um, at that stage in his career. And this all of a sudden made us look at him like he was a legitimate actor still. And I think his performance is very strong in there. I do too. Um, and he's, he's one of the, the characters who isn't, overacting he just plays it exactly how it needs to be played i love bruce willis in dramatic roles i, I uh, do unbreakable i think yeah. it's another strong performance of his i think it's better than a uh, sixth sense well at least him in that movie i think you he's know, better in unbreakable than he is in sixth sense he's done three movies with sam jackson he's done that one unbreakable he's done uh, the Die Hard one sam, sam jackson samuel l jackson was oh in i was sorry I had a complete Mr. Glass, right? And Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you're right. So, so yeah, Pulp Fiction, uh, Unbreakable, and then um, Die that Hard. Die Hard movie. Not a Too great good. one, but, um, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, Redemption number one, uh, Bruce Willis. Um, and, you know, I would say that, again, it sort of brought him back from sort of obscurity that, oh, you remember mm-hmm. that guy that used to be on Moonlighting? <laughs> you know? Um, and then, of course, John Travolta who we hadn't seen really in years doing anything. And Quentin kind of does this. He's got these favorite actors, whether it's Michael Parks or mm-hmm. Pam Greer, and in this case it was John Travolta, and he says, this is for you. I've written this part for you. Come in and do it. And he's just a little bit like, uh, um, oh, what's the, what's the character that he played on Welcome Back, Cotter? Um you know, the, the kind of 70s stoner guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a little bit removed from that, right? Because he's not a very smart character, mm-hmm. as we see in, in the movie as it unfolds. But um, incredibly entertaining, very watchable on the big screen after years 
of not being watchable and really just not even getting any work to do anything. Of course, mm-hmm. he parlayed that into uh, Battleship Earth and uh, <laughs> lots of other terrible Face movies. Off. Follow. Face Off. What's the angel one? Michael or something? Michael. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Oh, my God. So he didn't do much with it, he right? Could use another redemption movie. Uh, yeah, maybe, hey, get, I, I, I'm sure he's still got Quentin's number somewhere, <laughs> so I'm sure they can work it out. Um, but, yeah, um, so two, two redemption uh, uh, performances in, in this movie. Um it's the first one really big budget movie in theaters. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, you could say he did it first, but this is the first wide um, release movie where they use that sort of um, time jump narrative through the whole movie. You're trying to figure out how it all connects and everything, which was very fun for an audience to experience as opposed to sort of being spoon fed all this stuff. Um, Music driven in a way that was unusual. We had soundtracks for movies, but they weren't really like characters in there. Um, I mean, why would you ever hear a Statler Brothers song in a movie to, for any reason, right? But he managed to put that in next to an Al Green song, next to the Cool and the Gang. I mean, this was like the soundtrack of the year for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, really compelling characters, all kinds of different characters too. Um, You know, we didn't talk about Harvey Keitel and and his Winston Wolf character, this iconic, mysterious person that comes in and Mm. saves the day. Um, But really interesting. And, of course, the two hitmen, Jules and and Vincent Vega, um, again, iconic characters that, you know, you hear that little bit of Bible verse from Sam Jackson. You know exactly what it is, where it's from, and where it's going, which is really important, too. Um, And, again, we talked about, like, no one is innocent. Everybody's a creep in this movie. There is no protagonist. There's no hero. No one saves the day. And really, we leave it on, you know, whose motorcycle is this? It's Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. (laughs) It's a very 90s movie. It kind of encapsulates, like, the 90s in a really, really unique way. What what do you mean when you say that? What what is your impression of 90s? My impression of the 90s comes from a lot of... uh, philosophy I've read about the 90s. Uh, you know, <clears throat> it's like a really cynical time, really nihilistic time. The film's pretty nihilistic when you look at it. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's not a lot of, like, um, allusions like these grand narratives or anything like that. It's very much a film that's kind of removed, and it's purposely so. It's really ironic. It's really kind of sardonic. I mean, that that was a pretty concurrent social you know, theme in the 90s, was, especially the early 90s. And uh, it's cool that you know, Quentin kind of captured that at a really potent time. And he kind of, like, set up um, his trademark with that movie. Like, uh, he did it with Reservoir Dogs, too, but, like, on a grand scale with Pulp Fiction, he kind of laid the groundwork for what is a Tarantino film. You know what I yeah. mean? So That's definitely developing that brand right there. Yeah. Um, I mean, after that, you could say Tarantino movie, and people knew what you meant. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, it, it so after its release, everybody saw this movie. This was kind of like uh, the Black Panther of its day. Um, grandparents were going out to see it. They just heard about this really funny, violent movie with the crazy dialogue and all the bad guys. And people who weren't going to movies or weren't going to see these kind of movies made it a point to go out and see it. And um, that was really unusual. And I think that that really does take that sort of, um, it really it really does require a cultural moment for that to happen, for everybody to just stop and everybody like listen to the same music or watch the same, same TV show or go see the same movie. So 
um, that's my favorite still mm. after all these years. Nice. Mitch. So now my favorite, um, I guess apparently something of an unpopular pick, which baffles me because like I can't like I've I've never been able how to see how like anybody could pick anything up but, but this, but Kill Bill Volume Two is my favorite Tarantino movie. And when you look at Tarantino's uh filmography kind of like in a timeline, there's really two eras. There's um pre Kill Bill and post Kill Bill. There's Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, kind of um, compared not not comparatively to like other films at the time, but comparatively to what his films would become very down to earth, more dialogue driven. Then you have the hyper stylized like Django, uh, Kill Bill, uh, Death Proof, everything after that. I think Kill Bill Volume Two kind of perfectly links those two. Um, uh, uh, eras in his career um, they've mentioned um, very well that uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 is this very visually stylish very visually appealing like beautiful movie I think the fact that Kill Bill Volume 2 kind of subverts that and makes it makes the whole thing both in the characters and in like the locales and the visuals a, a lot more like trashy and um, I guess more kind of like realistic more um Call, more of a callback to his earlier films, and really, when, when you look at the Kill Bill movie, uh, Kill Bill movies as a whole, th- that was Tarantino's first kind of overt homage to a film genre, which kind of became his calling card as his career went on. Um, and in Kill Bill, he simultaneously pays homage to samurai movies and westerns. I think Kill Bill Volume One's more of the samurai movie with some westerny elements, whereas uh, Volume two is a bit more of the Western and um, which really is, as we've come to realize, kind of his favorite genre to play around in. He's done two more movies in that genre. And yeah, but as opposed to Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume Launch is very entertaining and very actiony. Kill Bill Volume Two, and I appreciate this a lot, um, kind of takes uh, tones down the pacing. It's it's uh, with that opening, like black and white, with uh, showing what actually happened on the wedding day, seeing actually seeing um, Bill for the first time, which is one thing I really did appreciate in the first one, how you could o- you only saw Bill um, uh, without as like just this like presence and not exactly a character like that. Um, the final shot of the movie where, where um, I'm blanking on her name, but the woman who got her arms cut off, the henchman of Oren Ishii, Lucy Liu's character, and Kill, Kill Bill's... Um, I called him Kill Bill. Bill, the character <laughs> Bill, uh, is, just has his like hands on his shoulder with like those rings and like um, a very powerful shot. And uh, I think a lot of my appreciation for Kill Bill Vaughn too is David Carradine, um, his acting, and what he does with this character. And it, and it kind of exemplifies... Just why I like this movie so much. A lot of, I think, not not some of like the best dramatic work that Tarantino's done in his career as a writer. Um, you have you, especially with the relationship between uh, Bill and the bride. Um, you don't really have like a in depth, well, um, well oriented, well. Um, written 
relationship chemistry between two characters as, throughout his filmography as you do with Bill and the Bride. But you also have, um, I think, one of my favorite parts of the movie is uh, Michael Madsen as Bud, Bill's brother, oh, yeah. has, um, I, th- I think, um, a very entertaining, very, um, but also very interesting and very, um, I don't know if moving, but very affecting mini, mini character arc that you kind of had to like pay close attention to. Um, so that's then, but then you do have kind of more style. You do have more stylish moments with uh, the bride training with Pai Mei on the top of the mountain, and that shot of just them with silhouettes practicing kung fu, like in that like striking red background. Um, kind of the counterpoint to the beautiful fight in the snow at the end of the last movie. There's the fight between the bride and the trailer, the trailer park. Then inside the trailer, it's... Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah is amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I, out of the two movies, I think she's she's actually got more to work with in the second one. Mm-hmm. I, and she's another one of those actresses that, like we mentioned, kind of Tarantino like brought back from the brink of obscurity and does like a lot a lot of great work with her character. Um, again, she has that kind of iconic like whistling scene in the first movie, but you, get, you really get to give really get a sense of like her presence as a character in this movie. And one, I think one of the more, um, one more thing before I let everybody else talk, um, the scene where, uh, the bride is buried. Um, Oh yeah. Six feet. I think, um, as is from a pure filmmaking standpoint, I think that's kind of Tarantino's finest hour, like when she's getting buried and like as more dirt's being thrown on, like the aspect ratio just closes in and closes in. Um, and um, when she eventually breaks out, you have that um, very grand, blaring Ennio Marconi music. Um, I think it's La Arena. I can't remember which movie it was from of his uh, Ennio Marconi being one of the more prominent uh, film composers. He's most known for working with Sergio Leone on his uh, Man With No Name trilogy. Um, uh, good, good, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly being Tarantino's favorite movie. He sat on multiple occasions. And Ennio Marconi, has his, he's worked with Tarantino a couple times. He actually, kind of a funny act though, he actually promised he would never work with Tarantino again after Django Unchained, because he didn't he didn't like how Tarantino incorporated music in his movies. He didn't he he felt it was too he did it too um, obtusely, hmm. kind of too um he didn't he put songs in the movies without really thinking about what um the, what those like the songs dramatic implications yeah which which I can see like especially. In some points where where rap music starts playing in Django Unchained, which I which I didn't mind, but I can see kind of more like a classical standpoint. It's this. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's that you know, and some of those guys have a problem with mm-hmm. soundtrack versus score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, for him, I think the score should. He thinks the score should be the star of the show, mm-hmm. and for Quentin Tarantino, he's going to pop in. Who knows that, what Tarant- Tarantino wheel or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and yeah, just I think one of his most effective uses of um, music in his movies is that Ennio Marconi score when she's breaking out of the um, coffin. And, that, and so yeah, those those are my thoughts on Kill Bill Volume Two. Now t- tell us what you really think. <laughs> um, so you opened that with uh, um, that it was an unpopular opinion. I'm, mm-hmm. I've never seen Kill Bill Volume One or Two, 
So are you talking um, about just me for giving you crap for that? <laughs> no, no, it's it's like, been is, other is, people. Is that, is that when like I a, say that, oh, it's Kill Bill Volume Two, until like oh, people are like, huh? I don't think I don't think it's is as remembered as Volume mm-hmm. One. I think that's part of the problem. Okay, for for me, it feels like it's three different movies. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the beginning that you mentioned. This really wonderful uh, kind of black and white slow moving kind of simmering you know the 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 kind of showdown between the assassins and the bride and these bunch of civilians that don't know what's going on they don't mm-hmm. know what's about to come down on them so that's an interesting movie and then we get back into the revenge movie and then for a little while um what what is the master's name the uh Pai Mei Pai Mei so then for a little while we leave and we go to a 1970s low budget karate movie which is awesome mm-hmm. Yeah, but then we go back into the re- revenge flick, um, and you know it's almost like the 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 last act is a completely different movie where it's just uh, the bride and Bill sort of talking it out. And he goes on to the, do the soliloquy about Superman and mm-hmm. Clark Kent, and you know there's a scene in there where he's making a sandwich and he's talking. He's making a sandwich for their daughter. And he is recounting to this woman that he hasn't seen in years and has spent the last few what weeks, months, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, trying to assassinate. He's talking to her like it's just mommy and daddy, you know, catching up on things. And he tells her uh, about the the story of the goldfish and, and how the daughter had uh, um, it contemplated the mysteries of death <laughs> after she stomped on her goldfish. So it's just a it's a weird movie. It's so many bits and pieces kind of mashed together. The way think, that, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Sorry. Um, the way that you guys describe it kind of sounds like the Matrix, <laughs> and I and I, I like I like the Matrix trilogy. Yeah, the trilogy. Wow, now that is an unpopular mm-hmm. opinion. Right I know. There. Well, two wow. two's not very good. The first half of two is horrible. Second half of two is really good. Third is kind of kind of okay. I think it's pretty good. Not as good as the first, but. It makes me really interested because now I really want to watch Kill Bill 1 and 2 because it sounds like now I would have, like, more of an appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's – there's Daryl Hannah is great in that movie. Mm-hmm. She's great. I killed your master is a great line in there as they're about to throw down in this in this um, mobile home. Um, she's really great, Michael Madsen. I don't love uh, uh, David Carradine. Hmm. But I like him when he's reading that dialogue. Like, he's mm-hmm. never been better than that. He's never mm-hmm. been better. I, I haven't really seen him in anything else besides that. But, like, he like he was just so striking to me yeah. in that movie. He's been in a ton of crappy movies, <laughs> so there's there's lots to choose from. But mm-hmm. he's, he's never been better. And I'm sure that's why he picked him up, because he's a B-movie, you know, mm-hmm. star, if you want to call him that. Um, but, yeah, he's never been better than in that movie. I love the mystery of the first one. So for me, mm-hmm. it was a little bit ruined when we saw him for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that happened in the beginning of the movie, right? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, they were having a conversation on the on the porch of, of wherever the, they were going to get Where they were going to have the wedding. Isn't it awesome when people talk about a movie in detail and you've never seen it before? <laughs> I just have to like nod be like, oh, yeah. Brent's uh, going, I have I'm no listening. idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I just want you guys to know I'm like paying attention. Um, so, but, you know, uh, it's, a good del- it's a good double feature sometimes. <gasps> yeah. You can, it's really when you sit down and watch them together, it is a style and contrast because those two movies are one story, but the two movies don't really fit together mm-hmm. that well. I like that. I think you kind of have to approach it like Reservoir Dogs as a Tarantino movie, 
as opposed to like approaching it just like as any movie. You kind of have to um, look through it with the Tarantino lens. Co- come come at it with like the expectation that this is going to be different, but as but also kind of like in Tarantino's very iconic stylized fashion of making movies. Okay, well, my number one pick is uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, I saw this movie in theaters. I love this movie. I rewatched it um, earlier today in preparation for it. I saw. I just. I, I have so many fond memories of seeing this movie in theaters when it came out, and it kind of made me. It was like the first time I watched Fight Club, which you know, Fight Club is whatever. But first time I watched Fight Club, it was like the first time I'd ever seen a movie that made me feel differently than like Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? Like it, you, when you're a kid, you really watch movies like Star Wars, Indiana Jones for like entertainment. You don't really watch a movie to like learn something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And with uh, Inglorious Bastards, I didn't really feel like I learned anything, but I looked at films differently. I looked at them much more as like a visual art form rather than like a twenty-five cent form of entertainment. You know? And um, again, like how I mentioned before, like the whole political angle. It was a really exciting concept, like this this faux fictional um, World War II history, which I love World War II. It's my favorite period of history. Getting to see a film that's like this fictional uh, assassination attempt on Hitler in like this you know parallel universe, I'm immediately sold on that concept. And I think it's one of Tarantino's most interesting concepts for a movie because the more you think about it, it's really a kind of bizarre idea for Tarantino to make this movie about like these bands of you know very militant Jews going around hunting Nazis. It doesn't sound like a movie that Hollywood would make, but they made it. Um so many just great shots, great performances. I love Brad Pitt in this movie. You know, I'm not a big <laughs> Brad Pitt fan. I just think he's hilarious in this movie. Um I love the use of violence in the movie because you know it's Tarantino's most violent film. Is it? Yeah, it has uh, the highest kill count. I, I learned that mm-hmm. today. Has the highest kill count, and um, I believe the most blood on screen, or like mm. the most like projections of blood in any mm. of his films. Mm. Okay. But um, I think it's interesting that his his bloodiest work, and in my opinion, like his most like politically visceral work, happens to be my favorite because it's just he handles his style. And the content really tastefully. He interjects himself where he needs to, but he never loses respect for the source material. Like that opening scene, that doesn't feel like Tarantino. That just feels like masterful filmmaking. Like yeah. that that could have been like Scorsese. Someone like, mm-hmm. you know, any any you know big name director could have made that. And um it 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 elevates the action genre more than most other films do. Like the action adventure genre could be so much more if people had the love for it that people like Tarantino have, you know, and I, I could talk about it all day. It's really, really good. I love it. It's a weird, it's a weird movie. It is. (laughs) And I I gotta tell you, it's one of my least favorite. Really? By him. Now you mentioned death proof, which I even forgot that he did. That movie (laughs) sucks. So that's, that's the bottom of the barrel for me. Can I ask why you don't like Inglorious Bastards? Oh, I thought you meant Death Proof. I'm like, watch it. No, I don't awful. <laughs> No, okay, so um, I love parts of that movie. You just mentioned um, the opening scene, which I think is one of the best pieces of film he's ever done. It is amazing. The tension, the, the movie um, score that he uses there, which he took from another movie, which was from the Alamo, which is crazy. 
uh, that it works, but it works beautifully there. Um, the way that, again, not always known for his cinematography, but that scene where she's, um, the little girl is basically, her family's been murdered and she's running out the back and he's, he's taking aim and he decides to let her go. As she's running out into the, um, into the field, it's almost like an impressionist painting. It's so beautiful to watch, but there's such horror there. Mm-hmm. You know, even watching him take that big, long, single drink of milk, and you just know that something terrible is going to happen. He's packing his pipe, and, and then the conversation switches. That's an amazing piece of, of storytelling. The other part of the movie that I really love is the scene in the pub. Mm-hmm. The, the charades scene. Yes, yeah. the that's charades. Um Again, and it's this tension that's ratcheting up, ratcheting up, ratcheting up. And you can see Michael Fassbender's character starting to lose it. And it's either his arrogance or his patience or whatever it is. It's just being that close to a member of the SS for that long. But he starts to break down, and he's, I hate to be rude, but... And then he makes his, you know, really his fatal mistake, the, the hand gesture that gives it away. Those, to me, are, are two brilliant pieces of that movie. Those are the only parts of the movie that I like because, you know, for me, I think you gotta, I think you got to kind of choose what story that you're telling. And if it's a story of uh, the Nazi hunters, I want more Nazi hunting then. I want there to be something else that's going to happen besides really just that one vignette that they did. Um, I loved Brad Pitt's character, too. Talk about scene chewing. Wow. <laughs> wow. I don't mind it in that case. <laughs> but, you know, it's very watchable. And Eli Roth, whoever thought he would do anything worth mentioning. Um, but but for five minutes on film, I maybe a little bit more than that. You know, he actually he actually delivers the goods in a in a good way. Um so I'm I'm I, I'm trying to decide like what kind of movie is this and what do I want to see? What do I want to see more of? I wanted to see more of Aldo. I wanted to see you could do a whole movie on that character. And that's what I wanted to see. And then there's, you know, there's the end, which is just, um, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I tell you guys never to swear on these podcasts. It is batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. That's all that the end of that movie is. I love it. It's crazy. But again, that almost feels like another movie that we've sort of walked into. I know yeah. all the characters are in the same place, but um, for me, the tone is kind of up and down. There's the tension just the the it makes you feel so uncomfortable you know what one movie it really reminds me of is life is beautiful it's another movie that, that yeah. makes me very yeah. uncomfortable in a lot of the similar ways because i view inglorious bastards as more of like a dark comedy or a um a black comedy and that that whole level of like the batshit craziness of the ending i for me i give it a pass because of how fantastical the situation is it makes it yeah. makes narrative sense that that would be so exaggerated and so overblown, and in my opinion, the film is so tense. It's so it's more tense than like most thrillers that that I come across. Sure. Um, it, it it's just one of those films that I can just watch and never be bored by. But the the comparison with Life is Beautiful is that that's another film where you know for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about this father and his son who are you know prisoners in a concentration camp and the father is kind of a jokester character and he tells the son like oh we're at an elaborate theme park and you know these people are here to entertain us and we're here to have fun 
And up until the very end, he's telling his son, oh, it's all you know, a game. It doesn't, it's not real. Don't worry about it. We're just here having fun. That movie has a lot of moments that are like Charlie Chaplin level of, of charm and other times where it's like hard to watch. And in my opinion, I feel like Tarantino was trying to do the same thing where he wanted you to feel um, so rooted in, in these characters like the, the Jews that are hunting the Nazis by painting them as people like Brad Pitt or Eli Roth, these really heroic looking men who are very uh, sporty and, and attractive, also really charismatic. Um, and then you contrast that with the, like the, the goofiness and the, the unable to take seriously the Nazis. And then when you um, glorify their deaths in such a fantastical way, I think it shows that conflict of or that contrast of, uh, um, you know, what are what are the real priorities? I, I feel like Quinn was kind of making a point that if you're outraged by the violence in the movie, what are you really trying to say? So I don't really get too hung up on what kind of movie is it trying to be. I get more hung up on what I feel like Quinn wanted to do with the movie. And I feel like he achieved what he wanted to do, in my opinion. Sure. What do you think? Mitch, I, I really like *Inglorious Bastards*. I'm, um, I'm kind of have, uh, I can agree with both of your, both of your parts, um, both of your opinions, um, to a different degree. I, I enjoy the movie as a whole. I think those two scenes that that we've talked about, kind of ad nauseum, like are both are both like, like perfect cinema, like perfect like entertainment cinema. Um, the rest of the movie didn't leave that much of an impression on me. As much as some of his other work did, still, still a thoroughly entertaining movie, but just not, um, not the most consistent, not the most kind yeah. of, um, yeah, not, not his most polished, maybe. See, I disagree. I, I love how he um, applied his his aesthetics and his style to this era of history. You know, because mm-hmm. um, he did it with Jackie Brown, a very specific time. He did it with. Uh, um, Django later on and the hateful eight. I just feel like he tapped into the time period so well and that it, it just works his use of music, his use of violence. It all just tonally works so well. I feel like it's a really tonally consistent film throughout, even though it's such a bizarre concept, it works. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I like the concept better than I like the movie, to be honest with you. I, I, I love the fact that he was brave enough again, you know, the beginning of our, of our conversation, we talk about, developing this singular voice, this kind of brand that is unique to everyone else. There's not a lot of other directors out there who could go into any sort of meeting and say, okay, this is what the next one's going to be. We're going to rewrite the ending of World War II. (laughs) And along the way, we're going to meet Brad Pitt, who's going to talk in this almost uh, unintelligible, you know, accent. And, uh, oh, by the way, Eli Roth is going to be a main character in here, too, if you've never seen him act. Great. <laughs> um, there's nobody that could pull that off, and studio execs are going to go, like, I- I'm down. I could, <laughs> I could watch that. Let's do it. Um, you mentioned um, Hateful Eight, which wasn't on anyone's list. But I, I, was, just, about to, I was about to, I was going to do that as, like, the closing. I was like, we, we, we haven't mentioned Hateful Eight at all. Because we hate it. I, I, I want to I wanna just mention a couple other movies. Death Proof, we mentioned, that <laughs> ridiculous like grindhouse thing that, that uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino and his buddy Robert Rodriguez, another one of those great uh, indie uh, filmmaker voices. Um, two ter- terrible movies <laughs> that they did. But one collaboration that was a little bit more successful, and I just, oh, 
far more entertaining to watch is from dusk until dawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dumb vampire kind of stripper movie mm-hmm. um, <laughs> with Harvey Keitel and George Clooney in really mm-hmm. his first uh, like headlining role since uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes or whatever the awful thing that he was in. <laughs> um, but this is right after uh, ER. Um, mm-hmm. A stupid Halloween flick that's really, really fun to watch. He actually is an actor in there. Um, but did a lot of the rewriting for that. And, of course, Robert Rodriguez um, directed it. So it's a really fun visual watch. Um, True Romance is something that he wrote, didn't mm-hmm. direct. Um, I don't know how much of that eventually made it into the movie, but a, a really interesting take on uh, kind of a proto-Tarantino movie before uh, Pulp Fiction and some of the others. Um, and Hateful Eight what did you think of Hateful Eight? This is one that really does divide a mm-hmm. lot of people. All right, what, what what do you think, Dave? What do you think of Hateful um, Eight? I liked it. I thought it was overly long. Mm-hmm. Um, I like when he does the tension thing. We just talked about that. That's that entire movie. It doesn't really move the needle very much. It just sort of ratchets up the um, sort of suspicion, tension, that sort of thing. Um, I like the Westerns. So this is another kind of a sort of a Western. Uh, again, it doesn't happen much. They, they end up riding a stagecoach to one place. The rest of mm-hmm. the movie unfolds. Um, I think some of the performances in there are really outstanding. Sam Jackson finds yet another character in you know Tarantino land to be able to uh, uh, sink his teeth into. Kurt Russell, I thought, was brilliant in there. Um, he didn't have to be much more than Kurt Russell in a giant beard. Mm-hmm. with a big fuzzy hat, but uh, he got every bit out of that that he could. Um, the actress, I'm blanking on her name, Jennifer Jason Lee's character mm-hmm. in there is yeah. amazing. She yeah. does so much with so little, right? All she is is kind of a mouthy racist <laughs> who gets smacked around a lot. Um, um, just is a really interesting, different movie. Mm-hmm. Um. Again, it's probably a little bit more grandiose in its um, intentions and what it actually delivers. But um, you know, it's it's a bit of a hard watch. It's um, it's it's difficult because it's so long and not much is happening. So, um, but I do I do like it for what it is. It won't be one of those that I I devote hours of my life to rewatching. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yes, I'm I'm more or less the same way. I I, I did enjoy it. I did I did really like some parts of it, but. It just didn't really – it's not going to stick with me as much as some of his finer films, I think. Um, it's the closest thing I think he's ever going to do to a horror movie. I think I realized that when I first watched it um, in the sense like one day you have Ennio Maricone music from The Exorcist um, kind of like underlying throughout the entire film. Also, it's – I think his most one of his more interesting approaches to violence in that as more people um, in this small confined space um, are, um, are killed, like the blood like stays on the walls and like it becomes it goes from being like um, kind of like a, a homesteady like Western vibe to being like a slasher movie towards the end, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there, there was a reviewer that described it as uh, Murder on the Orient Express without the train. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. that's not that far off. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I wish a little bit more happened in there, but yeah, mm-hmm. it, almost in a way it is it's almost a horror movie too. Cause mm-hmm. there's a killer in there somehow. Yeah. Um, and you know, our job is to figure out who it is. Also, uh, I wanted to mention Walton, uh, Walton Goggins. Goggins. I was going to mention him. He's him and Sam Jackson and Jennifer Jason Leigh. I thought were like, like the pieces of the movie that like really held it together. Like really like outstanding for me. Yeah, absolutely. Turned it off after about an hour. <laughs> wow. Sorry. I didn't Brent. make it all the I way through. I, I thought it was kind of boring. I didn't really care for mm. it. I'm sorry. What What did you not like? I mean, I mean, boring in terms um, of like what was your expectation going in? I think just the premise didn't really interest me from the get-go. Nothing about the film really interested me. I had no real desire to see it. I just kind of watched it on Netflix because it was like on. When I watched it, I was like, all right. I mean, it's the new Tarantino. I like Django a lot, and it's just like a Western, and I like Django, so I don't know. It just kind of was there. There's nothing I could really, like, immerse myself in or get connected with. It felt really kind of like – it felt phoned in. It felt like a really phoned-in Tarantino oh, really? movie. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But I I did appreciate uh, the ending. I did it because I did, like, mm-hmm. attempt to rewatch it a couple – like, I watched it in, like, splits, like, hour, okay. like, a few <laughs> splits, but – the ending, I like how you made that um, connection, like horror, because I kind of like thought about that too when I first mm-hmm. watched it. I think Tarantino would be really, really good at making a horror movie. Isn't mm-hmm. he working on a movie right now with Brad Pitt? Um, his next um, about, the, about the Manson. His murders, next movie is um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, kind of, which is the title is kind of a callback to like Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America. Um, Sergio Leone movies with, and yeah, it's going to be. As far as anybody knows about it, it's going to be Leo DiCaprio, I think, maybe. Um, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, I think, is I'm part sure. of it as well. I bought, um, I, wasn't it about like the Manson killing? It's or? going to be kind of partially a story of just these independent film, not independent filmmakers, but like television actors and directors who want to make it big in like the Hollywood scene and set in the backdrop of. 1969 Hollywood, which again is kind of um, has this looming specter of the Manson murders hanging right. over it. So it's kind of the the studio system, and mm-hmm. and like I think Tom Cruise is supposed to be like a stuntman or something. Yes, right? I believe so. Um, and I forgot who's um, Wolf of Wall Street. Harley Margot Lee. Robbie. Yeah, she's supposed to play Sharon, Sharon Tate. Tate. Yep. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I'm she... actually a little bit excited for that movie. I feel like. Um, Getting him out of the Western era and like mm-hmm. the yeah. period piece era, or it's still a period piece, but more of a like modern period piece. It would kind of return to his, it'd be more of a return to form, I think. More of a, uh, another opportunity to be very like dialogue driven and really showcase his writing yeah. chops as opposed to the more like stylized action that he's done. I, I don't remember if he described Hateful Eight this way or a reviewer described it this way. I kind of feel like I read him describe it this way. He essentially wanted to produce a play mm-hmm. on film. And that is exactly what you get with that movie. It, yeah. it, again, you, everything takes place basically in one space. Um, different experiment for him, you know. Um, again, interesting story, but yeah, I don't, I don't care to see that again. So something that's got a little bit more swing to it, and something to help him uh, get a little bit more energy. That's what was missing from that movie was energy. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's like his least essential film. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Except maybe Death Death Proof, (laughs) which sucks. So, yeah, he's not perfect. Now, would you still say he's overrated? Yeah. 
Even, even in Glorious Bastards, as much as I love that movie, he is overrated. So as a body of work, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but, like, why do you think that? Because, as as we discussed last week in the pod, podcast, um, Tarantino does a lot of homage, and he usually gets those things attributed to his own style, whereas I feel like he's much less of a director's director. I feel like he's a stronger writer. Um, from the directing standpoint, I feel like he's a really good... Um, revisionist revisionist yeah I feel like he has a really strong eye for what's good in cinema and he relies on homage to carry it and there's nothing wrong with that like I'm totally cool with a director using homage like if they love a film why not give a wink to it Um, I don't think that he's like a masterful director I feel like he's a really strong writer but most people hold him in the regard of a masterful director and that's why I think he's overrated because I don't think he is Mm -hmm. You also think I, Still? I would call him overrated only in the sense that like his fan base has such like a grand appreciation for him. Like he, like I said in the podcast, they almost um, to a certain like subset of the film community, he's almost ascended to this level of like godhood among um, directors, which I think t- like taking away just like the pu- the sheer entertainment value that his movies provides, I don't really think he's quite that high quality. Of a filmmaker, um, like he's at this this point in the career where I'm not, I'm excited to see any movie he does, but I'm not. I don't like have to see it. Like I just feel like like oh, it's a Tarantino movie. Everybody's going to be talking about it. It's going to be it's going to be fine. Just, might as well go see it. Um, and I think there are just more um, ex- exciting filmmakers around, like Scorsese. Like every Scorsese movie, like I think i have to see um and i've but are they good yeah paul thomas anderson Mm-mm. paul thomas anderson's another one except for magnolia he hasn't released a I bad movie today magnolias we will do an episode on <laughs> how much that movie sucks i don't want to be a part of that one <laughs> okay. i can just bow out of that one yeah. that's fine but uh but yeah I, I think um i would also tend to say that he's overrated and this is why mm-hmm. i think out of his catalog you've got four or five really solid movies. And then you've got some that all have some pretty major problems Mm -hmm. uh, with them. However, having said that, um, I think a lot of what you don't like about him, you know, so he, he does seem a little too precious. Sometimes it does seem like he's um, uh, maybe gets more attention than he deserves. Um, Probably true. I don't know that he's responsible for that. I think a lot of people did take to his style and try to be a really poor version of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the latter 90s. Um, you know, a lot of these, uh, the movies that were trying to be a little bit smarter than they actually were. That's sort Guy, of, Guy Ritchie's entire show. Yeah, kind of ruined the brand a little bit, um, mm-hmm. tarnished it some. But I would, I would definitely say this. When he's operating at the top of his game, when he's got a clear single vision, for a story that he wants to tell Django, all the ones that we mentioned today, really, even uh, Inglorious, which I I like, but I don't love. Still a really interesting vision for that. Um, I think there's nobody better than this guy, and really nobody better um, when it comes to to interesting dialogue. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be looking forward to that once upon a time. And is it Hollywood? Hollywood. Yeah. It's a pretty bold claim. I like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And... Um, I guess la- very last thing, if you h- had to recommend one movie for someone to start with, 
which one would you recommend? Is it your number one, or would you recommend something else? Um, I'd actually choose Kill Bill Volume One as his um as like the move as the one that best encapsulates like uh what how what he is as a filmmaker um and she and sheerly one of the more like sheerly entertaining movies um that he's done one of the more approachable and accessible and uh, as you know as an added bonus um after that you get to watch kill bill volume two which is really the best thing that can offer anybody um from personal taste i'd say inglorious bastards because i feel it i think it's his best film um objectively pulp fiction uh it's his it's his masterpiece in air quotes. Um, no film really encapsulates him better than that. That's the best place to start. Uh, on on a good day, I think I would probably just recommend um, Reservoir Dogs. Just start at the mm-hmm. beginning and and really watch the growth happen or not happen from there. <laughs> um, so and you know what, everybody looks good in black shades and a black suit and mm-hmm. you know black tie. So there you go. There's a good place to start. All right, well, thanks a lot for coming on, Dave. You know that you're more than welcome anytime. You want to be on the Thank program. you. I can just push my way on whenever I want to. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Just, just talk about barge my right favorite in. director for three hours. Now, thank you, guys. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate um, everything you've done for us this semester. This is a brand new show that we launched this year, and you guys have done a brilliant job with it, uh, exploring all kinds of different uh, types of cinema that wouldn't have occurred to many of us. So uh, thank you, and thank you. Thank for you. Uh, doing this and helping educate the world about great cinema. Well, thank you for giving us the opportunity to. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm blushing over here. Uh, this has been Moving Pictures. I've been your host, Brent Gunn. This has been Mitchell Kakalka. And thank you for listening. Thank you.